Well, the most disturbing book that I've ever read in my entire life, it wasn't a Stephen King novel, but it was a John Owen book entitled Apostasy from the Gospel. And the reading of this solemn work coincided with a time in my life when I had two very close friends become apostates. One of them I went to seminary with, knew him well. His parents were missionaries. And the other one was a man that I served with in Christian ministry for over a year. And in both cases, I never would have guessed that they would have done what they did. They presented themselves as eager believers. They read God's Word faithfully. They prayed with apparent sincerity. They appeared to be leading their families in a Christ-like way. So when they very publicly and vehemently rejected Jesus Christ and their former Christian faith, it was like being kicked hard in the stomach, not seeing it coming. It was horrible. I was angry. I was scared. I was brokenhearted. And what made this so insidious, what made this so horrible, was they didn't just leave the visible church quietly, but they began a concerted effort to destroy the faith of others and to lead people away from Christ. It was horrifying. Apostasy. Well, that's what we're confronted with this morning in Hebrews 6, the reality and the horrors of apostasy. But we also must see right here embedded in God's holy word, in this glorious living word, assurance and encouragement from the Lord to his people. Well, we must remember the context. This body of believers has been experiencing a lot of hardships and persecution there in and around Jerusalem, these Hebrew Christians and Many within the visible church have had enough with the circumstances and the pain and the persecution, so they abandon the church, they leave the only source of peace, which is Christ, and they go back seeking peace with the world to temple worship, to go along and get along with the people. And the author has been building an airtight case of why we must not do that. We must hold to the Lord Jesus Christ alone. He's the only hope. He's the only way of salvation. We have to look to him because he's the only true prophet, priest, and king of God most high. He's the savior. And so this author has been building layer upon layer the most beautiful Christology ever written, a theology of Jesus Christ, his person and his work from the Old Testament And the reality of Christ's coming, all that the people had witnessed, he is building this glorious theology of Jesus. And we've just seen in Hebrews chapter 5, the majesty of the great high priest. He is the, the Lord of righteousness, the King of righteousness who became the lamb upon the cross to bring about atonement for his people. To bring peace between holy God and unholy sinners like you and me. And then all of a sudden the author pauses at that moment and he gives the church a verbal spanking. He gives the church a 
a spiritual tongue lashing. He says, you Christians are immature in your growth and faith. You must press on. He corrects them. He reproves them. And now, this morning, moving on, he turns to the very serious matter of apostasy. You know, it's my opinion that there's nothing in the Christian life scarier than witnessing apostasy firsthand. And there is nothing more needed and more relevant to the Christian life than Holy Spirit wrought assurance of salvation that grows in our hearts and lives. And today we see both. And today we see both within the mystery of the visible church comprised of both wheat and tares and sheep and goats right before our eyes in the text. So give attention to the reading of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 12. The living Word for you and me. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come if they then fall away. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt for land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is... Not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for His sake in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Amen. The Word of the Lord. Well, that brings us to our first main point this morning. The Lord's severe warning about counterfeit Christians within the church. That's what we see here in verses 4 to 6. We see His severe warning about counterfeit Christians within the church. Here we have the sobering and horrifying reality of the possibility of apostasy in the visible church. And so He warns us. He gives us a warning of what it is and and of, of who it is. And what's the state of such a person's soul that falls away and is an apostate? This is heavy. So what is apostasy? Well, a simple definition is this. Apostasy is a public abandonment of the Christian faith that one previously professed So that Jesus Christ and His gospel are deserted, despised, rejected, and disparaged. This is horrible. That's what it is. It's horrible. But who is warned here? He's writing to the church. This is a 
a general warning on one level about a very specific sin. And notice that it comes with specific descriptions, but at the same time, it comes rather impersonally. It's a warning to us all, brothers and sisters, to watch out, to be on guard. We must press on in the Christian faith. We're warned that we can't become lax in our Christian life. We can't become sluggish. We can't become slow to exercise and use the disciplines of God's grace in our lives, His Word to us. We, we cannot be about the business of turning away from all of His goodness to us in the Word of God so that our ears, our spiritual ears of our heart are clogged up with, with the love of the world. If we do that, we're in danger because we easily grow lukewarm And then we easily grow cold to Christ. And then we easily grow hardened to Christ. And finally, in the case of the apostate, they they come to hate Christ. It's a warning to all of us. But who is specifically described? We have to see this. There are five traits that all apostates share. They've been enlightened. They've tasted of the heavenly gift. They become partakers of the Spirit. They've tasted of the goodness of the Word of God. They've tasted of the powers of the age to come. This is scary because these are things that we all want for ourselves, right? So how do we understand this? Specifically, who is in view here in verses 4 to 8? Who is the apostate specifically? Well, there are two major views that we must consider about what is being described here. Who is the apostate? The first major view of the church teaches that what is described is actually a true blue, born-again Christian, alive in Christ with salvation. And they fall away and apostatize and reject the Lord and they lose their salvation and apparently permanently forever and ever. But you know, it's interesting, when you look at this in church history, this is not the predominant view, even among those that we call Arminians or those who believe that God and man work together for salvation of the individual. They don't like this view. Those that believe that a a true blue Christian can lose their salvation. They don't like this view because they believe they can be saved again. And I must admit that if all we had were these verses describing apostasy to us, it would be a great struggle to understand this. But hallelujah, brothers and sisters, we have the full counsel of God's Word so that we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture and the clear passages add light and clarity to the cloudy passages. Praise the Lord, we have the rest of the Word. We have dozens and dozens of clear testimonies in God's Word that salvation belongs to the Lord alone. It's His work from beginning to end. He will not let His people go in Christ. There is the preservation of the saints, the the glorious truth of that. We have John 10, we have Romans 8, we have the first chapter of Ephesians. Beautiful, wonderful, powerful testimony that we cannot lose our salvation if we are in Christ. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who is 
given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Hallelujah. And we have Romans 8. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, this first view does not stand up to the full counsel of God's word. That these are true, blue, born-again believers in Christ that know salvation and then apostatize and lose it forever and are damned. It doesn't stand up. So then there's the second view, the predominant view, the reformed view. I believe that the right view that what's being described here is Christians in the visible church that are counterfeit. They present as the real deal, but they're not really born again in the heart with a living faith in Christ. Unlike those within the church that are drinking deeply from God's Word and the Spirit moves and gives life so that they are alive in Christ, these don't. They are counterfeits. They just taste They just taste a little bit of the good things of God and they don't consume. Well, just think about the celebration of the sacraments, the right and good, faithful preaching of God's word. It's all only possible because of God's grace and the Spirit poured out so that this takes place. And it's only effectual when Christ is united to a person's heart by the gift of faith in the Holy Spirit. And we have biblical examples throughout Scripture of counterfeit believers, don't we? Throughout the Scriptures. Of course, the the most infamous one being Judas. Think about it. He saw with his eyes and heard with his ears more power and glory than we've ever seen in a certain specific way. I mean, he saw Jesus raise the dead. He heard perfect and pure sermons from the lips of the Word made flesh. And he was a counterfeit Christian, a wolf in sheep's clothing. You see, the counterfeit Christian without the true root of living faith in Christ is enlightened to the Word of God intellectually. They taste the heavenly gifts, in a sense, temporarily and situationally, but not truly with the new life in Christ so that they are alive. It's not the case for them. They see the glory of God's work in the church where spiritually dead people hear the gospel and come alive to faith and sing praise and make confession. They see the power of that. But they don't really participate in it. The apostate has been part of the visible church, but not the invisible and eternal body of Christ. That's what we're being taught here. And we must understand that these things that they show forth and experience are blessings, but they're not saving blessings because they're not effectual. They don't come forth because of Christ in the heart of these counterfeit Christians Well, as this view flows from the text, as we see what the author of Hebrews is pressing home, we we have this holy commentary that makes this come even more alive, doesn't it? Hebrews is the most glorious divine commentary of the Old Testament. And specifically, the author of the Hebrews writing to these Hebrew Christians has commentary about their forefathers in the flesh. The Hebrews that the Lord delivered from Egypt. 
He writes about them. He points to them. This is part of this experience and the reality of counterfeit believers within the midst of the body. Think about it. Israel was delivered by God out of Egypt with mighty wonders and signs and power of the the Word of God and the the kingdom of God breaking in so that they were delivered. They They were brought out of Egypt under the bondage of Pharaoh and slavery, and they went through the baptism of the Red Sea. Imagine seeing that kind of power. We read that they enjoyed the pillar of fire by night, the protection of the Lord. We read that they enjoyed the pillar of cloud by day. We read that they tasted the manna from heaven with their lips. They consumed the blessings of the power of God. They were part of the visible church. And yet, that whole generation died in the wilderness except for Caleb and Joshua and the children. They turned away. They rejected the truth of the Lord. An entire generation fell away. And so the author is pointing to this reality to these Jewish Christians of the day. And he's pressing in on them and he's saying, look at the example, look at the reality. This is the way it is. The wheat and the tares, the sheep and the goats. But how much more you, brothers and sisters, have tasted the power of the kingdom of God come to earth. Just think about what's happened in Jerusalem just 20 or maybe at most 30 years before his writing to this church. Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the full, the power of the gospel breaking out upon the world, the kingdom has come. Manifested flames of fire on tops of the apostles' heads. We see this, we read about it, they experienced it. They had tasted, they had heard, they had partaken. This experiential word comes over again and again, doesn't it? They tasted, they tasted, they tasted. You know, you can taste something to have the experience given to you so that you can decide whether or not to receive it or reject it. You might go to an ice cream parlor and get little tastes of it. Or maybe for you adults, you've gone to a wine tasting. You get a little taste, and if you don't like it, you can just spit it out. You don't have to receive it. You don't have to take it in. To taste something isn't to sit down and have a full meal of it. To be utterly filled up on it so that it becomes part of you. And so, having tasted the gospel realities, the apostate, the counterfeit Christian then turns and shows his faithless, rootless heart and rejects the Lord publicly and shamelessly. That's what we see here. Well, what's the state of such a person's soul? This is horrifying. What's the state of the apostate soul? Well, the verbiage he uses here to describe their deplorable state and their inability to return to to Christ, it's graphic. I don't even really want to use it. But the picture that he shows is when they shamelessly and publicly deny and repudiate the Lord of glory, it's as though they go to the cross and rip down the body of Jesus from the nails and throw it in the trash as a worthless thing. 
That's what they do when they come forth publicly and deny the Christ and deny the gospel. And then somehow they're going to have faith again and try to take the body from the trash heap and then put it back up on the cross. He says, no, this is shameless. This is a cursed thing. This is heavy. The text has to speak. We dare not distort it or mollify it. There's a sense in which the sin of the apostate is greater than the sins of the Roman soldiers that crucified Jesus. Think about that. What a horrible sin to crucify the Lord of life, really and truly, physically. And yet Jesus prayed for them from the the cross. He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. They did what they did in part in ignorance. But how horrible when somebody who knows theology and the glory of Scripture and the glory of Christ and, and what he has done for his people as the Lord of righteousness and as the Lamb of God who, who goes to the cross, who bore the sins of his people in eternity of hell forever and ever in his body, that we might have life and peace and joy knowing that. And then they say, no, don't want it, don't need it, I despise it. You see, their state is worse than those who haven't even heard the gospel. They turn away. They repudiate the Christ. They despise. It's a horrible, evil thing. This is a sobering warning to the church because we'll see it. We need to be prepared for it, and we need to be protected ourselves. Well, the Lord gives us a picture to drive this home, an illustration, doesn't he? That's our second main point, the Lord's expectation and promise illustrated for the church. That's what we see in verses 7 and 8. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Have you all noticed the signs of spring beginning to just peek out a little bit? I know Poxitani Phil saw his uh, shadow last week, but praise the Lord, that little rodent doesn't live in Georgia. Amen? And here we are in the sunny south, and even in February, in, a, in the midst of a cold winter, the signs of spring and summer are starting to pop out. The daffodils. The jonquils, the narcissus, whatever you call those little yellow flowers, they're beautiful, they're joyful, they're letting us know spring is coming, summer is coming, the promise, the expectation. I saw my first red bud begin to pop this week, that beautiful tree. Well, perhaps some of you are very diligent, skilled gardeners, and you've already begun to plant vegetable seeds and flower seeds, you've got seedlings, you have expectations for your garden you got a plan. And of course, so does the Lord. He has expectations and a plan and a promise for the visible community of Christ. And here it is in this illustration to drive it home. He paints the picture for us. The Lord is the gardener of the visible church. He tends it. He keeps it. He provides for it. He works it. He has expectations 
That's what we see. What does he expect? He expects spiritual maturity and growth and grace to be manifested in wise and obedient living as we go forth in the Christian life. And as part of this, we grow in the blessed gift of assurance. That's the expectation of the Lord. With the diligent use of his means of grace, the word of God read and preached and prayed and sung and experienced in the sacraments, he expects growth and fruitfulness in our lives, in the visible church. But you see, for those who are counterfeit Christians planted within the garden, they experience all the blessings found within the church around. And yet instead of living faith, there's this temporary rootless faith that produces thorns and thistles. Well, you know, just as the Lord expects fruitfulness in His garden, don't you? You know, you labor hard over a garden and you delight to go out there in the garden and take a garden stroll. What's happening? What's growing? New fruit, new flowers. The Lord expects and desires fruitfulness. You know, Jesus on the way into Jerusalem one time, he saw a a figless fig tree. What did he do? He cursed it. He was angry. He was angry at this fig tree. How dare you enjoy the sun, the gift, the rains from heaven, the dirt that your roots are in drawing forth nutrients, and yet you are a figless fig tree. What good are you? He cursed this tree. He was angry. Well, the realization of God's expectation comes, the promise of the Lord. God will not be mocked. What? you sow, you will reap. The faithless man reaps what he sows, and the faithful man in Christ reaps what he sows. The Lord promises. You see, brothers and sisters, the Christian life is not a life of passivity or moving backwards. It's a life of growth and moving forward in the faith with new obedience and repentance and the gifts of God. There's the promise. So what is promised here? Those who live in the midst of God's visible church blessings and yet are faithless and rootless, they manifest nothing good, nothing lasting, and nothing beautiful. And on the day of the Lord, poof, it's burned up. But those who are in Christ, they manifest the fruitfulness of the fruit of the Spirit growing in sanctification as their heart which has the taproot of living faith sealed by the Spirit, grows and matures through the struggles of the Christian life. As we sin and fall flat, the Lord lifts us up. We repent, we believe, we move forward, we profess, we confess, and we praise. And there's fruit. God expects it. He's promised it. So we've We've seen the warning about counterfeit Christians. We've seen God's expectation and promise for the visible church. And now, brothers and sisters, hallelujah, finally, we see the Lord's personal encouragement to his people. This is so awesome. Because this text is so hard and so disturbing. The Lord knows what we need. And so he bookends it with a wonderful encouragement and promise 
that's personal. That's our final thought. The Lord's personal encouragement offered to the church, we see that in verses 9 to 12, we have a statement of ultimate assurance here. They are beloved. They're beloved by the Father of love. What a beautiful word. They're beloved. God is sovereign over salvation. What we see in verses 9 to 12 are these authentic Christians planted within the visible church also have the seed of living faith planted within their hearts that grows mysteriously in the secret places of our lives. And then it begins to manifest on the outside the fruitfulness and the joy of being in the Lord which also brings greater assurance because of God's personal encouragement to His people. We see this personal and loving encouragement. This personal pronoun, you or yours, is used in the Greek seven times in just these few verses. In the English translation, it's six times, but we see it again and again. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. What an encouragement. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and your love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints as you still do. It's personal. He's contacting our souls and our hearts with this great encouragement. We have right here the glorious assurance of the Lord. I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What an awesome promise. The personal assurance of the Lord. Again, verse 9, we feel better. We for sure, we feel sure of better things for you. Belonging to salvation, brothers and sisters, you have living faith and you show it. You manifest it by your work, your love, your service. We have to remember, brothers and sisters, that security in the Christian life is rooted in the sovereignty of God. He's all-powerful. His will will not be thwarted. His plan and His promise happen. And He works in our lives and we receive His Word, even the hard parts. And by the Spirit, we thank Him for it. And we ask the Lord to please apply it to our hearts and souls and lives that we might live it in the struggle of the Christian life as we go out there day by day in our homes, in our communities, in our church, in our workplace. We struggle in the life of faith. And as we do that, we grow. We grow both in our knowledge of God's love for us and we grow experientially in His assuring love of the hope of heaven in our hearts. That's this personal assurance that He gives to us right here so that the struggle of enduring faith, hope, and love grow with the blessing of assurance. Assurance is a fickle thing to our fickle hearts. But as we grow in the Lord and we struggle and strive by the the Spirit and the Word... We're transformed, and with that comes a greater hope and assurance that God is at work. We do this as we live. We do this as we love. We do this as we believe and obey. And more and more, our inner life 
which is Christ in us, the hope of glory, begins to manifest in our outward life. To the watching world, to our brothers and sisters, to our families, to our spouse, to our children, and we have more assurance of hope all the way to the end. That's the promise here. Well, it comes in the struggle. God's grace is sovereign. His salvation is sovereign. And yet man is responsible for his actions. But hallelujah, by the gospel, by the grace of God's gospel, he overshadows his people in Christ. He forgives us. He justifies us through the gift of faith in Christ. And he is sanctifying us. And he gives us this personal assurance and encouragement so that we can encourage one another. Don't we need encouragement? This is such a discouraging world of brokenness and craziness with balloons flying over and getting shot down and all the nonsense and the craziness of a broken, sinful, God-hating world. We need the encouragement of the gospel. And we have it. And he blesses us as we grow in patient, enduring faithfulness, moving forward in the Christian life. And the, the very end here is so beautiful and powerful. Brothers and sisters, we have to see this. As we look at the generations of God's people in the past who were faithful in the grips of His grace to live and to serve and to witness, we're encouraged by their lives and what God did. And then we begin to model our lives after their lives in the gospel because of Christ, and we become the model and the encouragement for the next generation. As you raise your children, as you serve in this church, you become an encouragement by your very life to future faithful witnesses of Christ in the gospel. What an awesome thing. What a glory that we have here. Brothers and sisters, we need to see this. So let's look to Christ together and hold fast and pray for one another. And know that whatever God has promised according to His will, He delights to do for us. And He's told us, if you pray according to my will, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I will do it. This is the will of God for you, even your sanctification. Let's pray that prayer for the session, for the deacons, for the pastors, for the brothers and sisters for our church, for our family, and let's grow in grace. And as we do that, we will be an oasis of encouragement to one another and to the watching world. So let's look to Christ. Let's pray for the hidden energy of the Holy Spirit to do this great work, to protect us and hold us fast, that we don't fall away. And that we keep pressing on day by day by day. And as we do that, we grow in joy. We grow in faith. We'll grow in love. Amen. Oh, Lord Almighty, what a hard text. What a hard truth. Even harder for those who have experienced it. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would hold us fast. We ask that by your grace and your mercy and the power of your spirit that we wouldn't just taste and dabble in the things of Christ and the power of the kingdom 
of heaven that is broken in here on earth, but that we would hold fast to it and consume it and be part of it all the way. Change us and transform us and encourage us this day in the gospel that we might be pointing others to the source of all comfort and grace and peace, which is Jesus, our beloved Savior. We ask it in his name. Amen.